0: Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, a lively crowd this morning. That's good. Uh, my name is Blake Godsey. Uh, I am one of the college fellows here at Grace. I've been a fellow for two and a half years. Um, I'm coming into my last month as a fellow, and just crazy. Um, I've been at the Creekside campus all year, so if you don't recognize me, that's why I've been hiding out off William D. Fitch. Most of you probably haven't even heard of William D. Fitch because you don't go that far south in College Station, um, but that's where I've been. Um, and then this uh, July, I'm going to be moving to Dallas, and I'm going to be starting uh, my Master of Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, so super excited about that. Um, so if I come back next summer and just totally recant everything I said this morning after I got some more theological education, then we'll deal with that as it comes. But for now, just go ahead and take me at my word. Um, so today, we're going to be continuing our Stories of the King series. we uh, going to be doing a parable of the 10 minus. So that is in Luke 19. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, so basically, I'm just going to summarize the, the parable for you as you, uh, as you turn to it. Uh, it's basically about this nobleman who is leaving uh, his country to receive authority to be king, and he's coming back. And so while he's gone, he asks his servants to use um, some money that he's given them to faithfully serve him while he's gone. And then when he returns, he evaluates them. Um, So this fit perfectly into my life uh, in Christian private school Bible class, first period, um, with Mr. Purrier. So Mr. Purrier was a, a great teacher, um, loved a lot of things about him, uh, but because it was first period, sometimes he didn't have like all his ducks in a row right away or you know there was something that he needed to do before class started. So he would kind of put on these little tests for us. Um, so he'd come into the room and if he needed to leave the room, he'd say, listen, I've got to go do X, Y, Z. While I'm gone, none of you are to speak. None of you are to communicate with each other. You're to be quiet. You gonna do your work, okay? And so we'd all be like, oh, yeah, Mr. Furrier, we got it. We're, we're seventh graders and eighth graders. We can totally follow these instructions. So he would leave, and then it'd be quiet for a little bit. And then there's like a snicker here, and then there's a whisper here, and somebody else whispers. By, you know, a couple minutes, six or seven people are talking, and then the other ones are like, guys, he told us, like, not to talk. Did y'all, did y'all hear him? Um, so then Mr. Furrier would come back into the room, and he'd have his sternest face on, and he'd say, if you were talking, meet me in the hall. And he just walks out the door and you're like, oh man. So if you were talking, you like slowly get up. And then you're looking at your friends who you know we're talking, but aren't getting up. And you're like, come on, you were talking. So we got into the hallway and then Mr. Purrier tells, were you guys talking while I was gone? And we say, no, sorry. He's like, I gave you a very simple instruction, not to talk while I was gone. You did, it, don't do it again. So this would happen, I don't know, like five or six times a semester, and Every single time somebody would talk. I don't really understand why we didn't start to get it after a while that he was serious about it. But every time he came back in, somebody had been talking, got called out into the hall. So this story that we're going to talk about today is like that because Mr. Purrier was like our nobleman who left town. Um, I assume he was going to get authority to be king. I didn't like confirm that with him because I wasn't supposed to be talking. Um, So, and then he comes back and he kind of evaluates how did we do Um, So here's kind of my goal for today. So first, I want to talk about the parable, what's the parable about. Uh, Second, I want to figure out what Jesus is asking us to do in this parable and how we're going to persevere in that goal. And then finally, I want to just give us a couple of practical examples for how we can follow Jesus' instruction. Okay, so what's happening in the parable? Um, Luke 19 is where we are. Um, So uh, we are going to... Start by talking about so the nobleman leaves country as I uh, leaves on this journey as I mentioned Uh, he's going to get authority to be king he gives the servant servants each one mina so a mina is kind of like a unit of currency and then um, there are also he tells them to work while he's gone there are also some subjects who say we don't want this man to be king we're not going to do anything that he says we'll get back to them later so when uh, the nobleman returns having received this authority to be king this is what Uh, happens next. So at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those slaves he had given the money to, so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good slave, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. Uh, The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you. For you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Okay, so the first one, he does great. He earns 10 minas with this one mina. So 10 times on his investment. And the second one, still a really good job. Five times on his investment. The other one makes nothing. He doesn't even earn interest. Um, and the nobleman's very upset that he didn't do what he was supposed to do. So he takes away the mina from the one who is unfaithful, and he gives it to the one who is the most, most faithful. Uh, and then at the end of the parable, um, those subjects who refuse to have uh, the nobleman rule over them are killed. So we'll get back to that in a little bit as well. Um, so in order to fully understand a parable, it's useful to be able to define your terms. So what, uh, what are each of the things representing? So here's our cast of characters. First we have... The kingdom. So this um, is a part at the very beginning of the passage in verse 11. Uh, It says, as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. So Jesus is with his disciples. They're going up to Jerusalem. He knows what they think is going to happen with the kingdom of God. They think he is going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to take the throne of Israel and he is going to begin ruling right away. This is what they've had in their minds from the very time that they heard about the prophecies, this is what everybody expected Jesus to be. So he is basically kind of using this parable to tell them why what they expect is not actually what's going to happen. Um, So the thing is that he tells them parables and sometimes he even tells them like explicitly, like the son of man is going to die. It seems to go just right over their head. For people who have followed Jesus for three years, they really don't understand Jesus very well. So this parable also is gonna go right over their head. They're not gonna understand. Um, but with hindsight, now, as we look back over the you know, misunderstandings of the disciples, we can understand that what Jesus is telling us um, is that the kingdom of God is something that's going to be established later on. So we know that Jesus is going to die, he's going to be resurrected, but then he's going to ascend to heaven, and he promises to come back. So that's what the kingdom refers to. So when the nobleman is coming, comes back, having received the authority to be king, for us, that's sometime in the future. That's when Jesus comes back. And we don't know when that'll be. So that is the noble, or that's the kingdom. And the next is the nobleman. The nobleman is Jesus. If you had not figured that one out already, he's the one who's going to receive authority to be king. Um, I like to imagine that he's being really obvious with this part when he's explaining it to the disciples. He's like, and then the nobleman leaves to receive authority to be king later on. And they're like, oh, that's a cool story, Jesus. Thanks for telling it. I'm not sure what you mean. I'm not sure how that's relevant. But again, you know, he, I like to imagine he's being really obvious and they're still just totally clueless as to what's going on. But yes, so the, uh, the nobleman is Jesus in the story. And then we have the slave or servant, depending on your translation. Um, that represents uh, us. That represents believers. So those are the people that Jesus has entrusted um, uh, a certain gift, a certain uh, mina in the parable. Um, to work with while he's gone. So that represents us believers. Um, If you thought you were the nobleman at the beginning, I'm sorry to tell you that you are in fact just a slave or servant. So you're going to have to knock yourself down a few notches, but it's okay. It works out pretty well for the good servants. And then uh, a lesser known group that is actually very important as we try to interpret what this parable is telling us is the subjects. So these are the people that in verse 14, they're the ones who say, we don't want this king to rule over us. Um, So this group is differentiated from the servants. So they are not all lumped in together. There's the servants who are willing to work for the noblemen. There's those who are not. Um, And so this group has a pretty bitter end. In verse 27, it says, but bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. So you're probably not going to stitch that one on a pillow. Uh, probably not going to put that... uh, verse under the page you buy in the yearbook under your graduation picture, Um, but it's what happens. And so I think this is really key for us understanding what this parable is about. So the parable, uh, just wanna say up front, is not a parable that is about salvation. Um, There are salvation elements, there are parts where we see the difference between the subjects and the servants, but this parable overall, the main point of this parable is not about salvation, but rather it's about the servants. It's about what do the people who did follow the king, what do they do with the time that they had while he was gone? And then finally, uh, the minas. So the minas, minas are a, a unit of currency, um, and for us, it figuratively represents you know, the gifts that Jesus gives us, um, what he gives us to use while he's gone. Okay, so what does this parable mean for us? Um, It means that as we are awaiting uh, Jesus to come back, um, we wait his return of the king, and we have been given a task until then. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? That's that's not too many. Uh, I've started to realize recently that I'm a major nerd, so I'm just trying to lean into it. So I'm just from the stage, I'm going to talk about it. Um, We can talk Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, any of that kind of stuff. But uh, if you have seen Lord of the Rings, and if you love it and you were just ashamed to raise your hand, Um, We can imagine that uh, it's kind of like Gondor waiting for Aragorn to return. He has that authority to be king. We know who the king's gonna be. We're just waiting for him to come and take the throne. So we are Gondor right now. And uh, yeah, so you can tell all your friends that, like I am Gondor uh, when you're watching Lord of the Rings and you can just start to get a little tear in your eye as you imagine waiting for your Aragorn, that's Jesus. Uh, It's very allegorical and sweet. So that's where we find ourselves. We are Gondor- trying to live faithfully until our Aragorn gets back. And so while uh, Jesus is gone, he's given us a task to do. So I think a big thing that as we think about this time before Jesus comes back, we've been given this task, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, about later. The biggest question is, in the span of a lifetime, how do we persevere? How can we hold on to that hope? How can we hold on to that truth that Jesus is coming back And how can we stay dedicated to the task that he's given us? We live in a culture that is increasingly uh, hostile to the idea of serving Jesus. We live in a culture um, where you would be mocked for doing the right thing for the sake of a king that you're waiting to return. Um, You will be slandered for holding on to a morality that fits to the ideals of the Bible because what our culture values is not morality, but it values freedom, the freedom of choice. That, that's always king. But what um, we, our culture doesn't realize is that that freedom that we think we have of choice is actually just another form of slavery. Because um, Paul tells us we're, we're all slaves to something. We're either slaves of Christ, or we're slaves to the world, we're slaves to sin. So this, what the cultural idea of freedom is, is really just another form of slavery. But we will be Um, we will be tempted to fall into that. We will be tempted to fall into that idea of freedom and to think that uh, our freedom of choice is the most important thing. But what we really need to focus on is how can we persevere in knowing that serving Christ with our lives is the most important thing. Um, You can think in the parable, those people with the minas, as they were earning, uh, even those faithful servants, as they were earning more minas, how many people you think would have encouraged them, like, man, you've made a lot of money. Like, that king's probably never coming back. You could just keep that you could continue to earn more and you could get a vast fortune for yourself. I'm sure that would have been a temptation for them. So the question is, as we persevere, what are the things that we can focus on? What are the things that are going to keep us going um, when the going gets tough? And the first is our king. Who are we waiting for? Who are we waiting for to return? Um, the, The most important thing is the person that we're serving. That's the most important thing as we think about how we're going to persevere. And we are very lucky to be serving a king who is as faithful and good as Jesus Christ is. Um, why wouldn't we want to serve a king who is willing to give up everything for us on the cross why, why wouldn't we want to serve a king who is willing to die on our behalf so that we could become children of God instead of being children of wrath? Uh, why wouldn't we want to serve a king who's just loving, full of grace, is uh, overwhelmingly accepting that he wants to bring everybody into his fold. Um, we, again, we're all slaves to something, so why not choose a good master? Why not choose Jesus to be a slave to? Because as he says, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So first, most important, want to emphasize that the nature of our king is the biggest thing that we want to focus on as we persevere. Uh, but the next thing we want to focus on is also uh, our minus. So what are our minus? Um, we, it was a unit of currency back then. What does it mean for us today? Um, so it's what Jesus gave us um, that we can work with while he's gone. Um, the first, I think, is the very gift of salvation itself, the ability to be brought into God's family. That's our number one thing, because before uh, we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we are Uh, We are sinful beings. We are stuck making sinful choices over and over again. And only from the freedom that Christ brings over sin are we able to choose good and to please God. So that very gift of salvation is one of the biggest things we have. Romans 8, 8 through 9 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Since the spirit of God lives in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So we see if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we're unable to get out of our sinful patterns. But because of our salvation, we have something that we can bring to the table with what, how we serve Jesus. And another one is the Holy Spirit. Um, we've been indwelled with the very Spirit of God inside of ourselves. That is an amazing gift. That's, that's, a, that's a fortune. That's not just one, Maya. that's a fortune to have the very Spirit of God dwelling in us, guiding us. Uh, This is obviously, I think we'd all agree, one of the most underrated gifts that we have. Um, Oftentimes we forget um, in our sinfulness, even as we still uh, struggle with sin and we struggle against the flesh, sometimes it's hard for us to remember that the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. But what a great and powerful thing that is, and that is uh, something that is brand new um, since the death and resurrection of Jesus for us to be able to live with God with us at all times. Uh, And so we need to take advantage of the guidance and the whispers of the Holy Spirit. And yet another one is our uh, spiritual gifts. So um, God has given each one of us special, unique abilities and talents and ways to serve Him. Um, So your spiritual gift may be in evangelism. It may be in shepherding. It may be in teaching. It may be in service. It may be in um, taking care of others. There's so many different gifts. There's lots listed in the Bible Um, you could probably even add some to that. Um, if you've never taken a spiritual gifts profile, I'd really encourage you like to, to look at one of those and see how God has geared you toward your own personal ministry to see, uh, how he can use you in what areas, uh, that maybe you could serve that somebody else might have a lot of difficulty serving in, but that you're perfectly created for. Um, I'd really encourage all of you to look into that. So we've got our minas. So we've got uh, within that, we have, we have salvation, we have the spirit, we have our gifts. Another way that we can persevere um, is through uh, the idea of reward. So I, I mentioned that this parable is not a parable about how to earn salvation. So your mina is not the life that you get, that you get just by being created and that if you live it well enough, then you get accepted. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the whole of scripture teaches. That's not what this parable teaches. Um, we know that um, salvation is by grace through faith, and that is the only qualification for entrance into the kingdom. However, the life we live still matters because like the parable tells us, Jesus is gonna come back, he's gonna ask us, how did you spend your time? How did you use the gifts that I gave you? So um, the idea of rewards is really a, a big part of this parable. So rewards are kind of something that we don't really understand we kind of like, uh, what does a reward in heaven look like? Are there people that are better than other people in heaven? Um, should I really be focused on rewards? Is that a good heart to serve the Lord with? Um, well, one thing we do know is that the Bible does talk about rewards. The Bible says that our lives here on earth have uh, consequences in eternity. And you're right, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We don't know exactly what rewards could look like. This parable, uh, in this parable, it's authority. Could, that could be uh, an element of the kingdom of God. We, don't, we really don't know. Um, but what we do know is that throughout Scripture, there's lots of promises about rewards. Um, just a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13 and 14 says, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Uh, Hebrews eleven six says, now without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Um, this verse puts a lot of emphasis on that. It says, um, "Without the, your faith should include the idea that God will reward those who earnestly seek him. That's like that's right in a verse about how important faith is, about how we should also believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, and then in 2 Timothy 4.8, Uh, It says, there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So we see that this is a a biblical concept. This is something that comes up. So like I said, we don't know exactly what it'll look like. Uh, It could also look like we get uh, crowns. Uh, He talks about the crown of righteousness Paul does there in the Second Timothy passage. It could be that we receive crowns and that we're we have more to then throw at Jesus' feet when we see him. And that sounds really sweet. It's like, oh, we get these crowns and we throw them on the ground before Jesus and he really likes it. He does, yeah. It's to use your life uh, to then show, hey, Jesus, look what I did with everything that you gave me. That is, that's a sweet moment. Um, I know we all like the idea of wearing crowns, but throwing them at people's feet is much better. Um, And then also just the fact about, should we be working with rewards in mind. Should we not work out of a pure heart toward the Lord? And I would say absolutely we should work out of a pure heart to the Lord. Um, but also I would say there are plenty of times when we do not have pure hearts toward the Lord, but our job is still to do the right thing. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about how he has a stewardship to share the gospel and that if he does it willingly, he says, it's to my benefit. He says, good for me. I shared the gospel willingly and with a smile on my face. He says, But if I don't do it willingly, I still have a stewardship. So it's kind of a little moment. He's like, even if I don't want to share the gospel, I'm still called to share the gospel. So that's what I should be doing. Uh, He's not going to wait for his feelings to catch up before he does what God wants him to do. So sometimes for us as humans, we need that little idea. Like, uh, I just really don't want to persevere in goodness. But you know what? I know that it's going to matter in eternity, because the Bible has told me it's going to matter one day, and that I will be rewarded for this. Sometimes I think that's a good mindset to have. If, if God didn't want us to have rewards in mind at all, he probably wouldn't have told us about them in the Bible. I think it's a legitimate um, way to sometimes motivate ourselves, though obviously we want to be striving after that pure heart for God, um, and to serve him out of that. Okay, so here are some ways uh, that we can persevere. Um, so the next thing um, I want to talk about, Oh, looky there. Those are those verses I mentioned earlier. So the next thing I want to move into is just uh, some application. So how can we practically serve the Lord? And obviously we could go on for hours and hours, and I will. No, I'm just kidding. I won't. Um, But about the different ways we could serve the Lord. I just really want to focus in today on one uh, tangible way that you can be involved in using your life in a way that will serve the kingdom now and that will um, result in a, hopefully, a great commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and so, no, we'll move on to that in a second. Just kidding. So the, one, the thing I really want to focus on uh, is discipleship. So discipleship, um, I think, has a great parallel to this parable. Um, if you think about one mina earning 10 minas, one mina earning five minas, and then you think about one person's life producing 10 disciples, one person's life producing five disciples. I think it's a great way to um, parallel um, this parable with how our lives can be. So discipleship can sometimes be a confusing word. Sometimes we have trouble knowing what is discipleship, what does discipleship look like, who disciples who, how many disciples, all this kind of stuff. So um, I know that that can be a little bit uh, murky sometimes, and a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on it. Um, But basically, what I would promote is that every person, young or old, should have a person um, who maybe is a little farther along in life that is helping uh, guide them, is helping teach them. And they should also have somebody who's maybe a little less far along in life that they are teaching and guiding. Um, So what does that look like? Does it look like um, you know, sharing all your feelings with that person? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Um, does it look like um, helping other people um, study the Bible better? Yeah, absolutely. But really, the all-encompassing goal of discipleship is to help another person to look more like Christ in their life. So, helping guide somebody through their life to help them look more like Christ. Um, like I said, I think we should all be in those kind of relationships. We should all be in a place where we are humbling ourselves to an extent and saying, I know I don't have it all figured out. I'd like to seek the wisdom of somebody else. And also to say, I, I do have something to give, and I know that God has called me to make disciples. So I'm going to seek somebody out that I can take under my wing, that I can help disciple. Um, so this can look uh, like a lot of different things practically as well. Um, it can be Um, mature believers um, working together in a discipleship relationship to just help each other grow to be even more, still excelling still more in becoming disciples of Christ. Um, It can also look like evangelism. So um, making disciples from people who are not yet Christians, uh, making disciples from people who uh, currently are lost, but helping them not only know the truth of the gospel, but also helping them to continue to grow and mature in that faith. Um, So if for some of us, uh, it may seem like I would, I would love that discipleship relationship. Both I would love for somebody to be discipling me. I would love to disciple somebody, but I just don't know who. So I'd really like to encourage you all as, as you go out today that you would think, who is somebody in my life that I really admire? Who's somebody that um, I, I think I could learn a lot from? don't be afraid to approach them. Um, I have approached people about discipling me before. I've had them say yes, and I've had them say no. And obviously you prefer it when somebody says yes. But even if they say no, um, they're, you know, they're, they're already booked up. They, have a lot of, they don't have a lot of free time. Um, it can kind of feel like a breakup, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you can just say, okay, this isn't the person that God had for me. Uh, and the same goes for if you're asking somebody to disciple you, they could say no. And it will probably be a little bit of a pride hit but that's okay. We can recover from that. That's not the person that God had for you to disciple. So that's something I'd really encourage y'all to think about, is just how can you be involved in those discipleship relationships, both discipling and being discipled. Um, And to close out today, I just really wanted to give you two examples of people who I think exhibit this parable well, who use their mind as well, who use their lives well to influence Uh, the gospel. So one of them is a guy named St. Patrick. You've probably all heard of St. Patrick. Um, He drank a lot or something like that, and he was Irish, and uh, he wore green all the time. Uh, People pinched him a lot, so he started wearing green. So the things we know about St. Patrick are pretty shallow. Um, We have that holiday that's pretty much just based around drinking, but he was actually a really cool guy. You don't just get to be a saint for nothing. So he, he did something, and what he did was he was captured from Britain. He wasn't actually Irish, he was actually British. Um, so he was captured from Britain, and he was taken to Ireland as a slave for six years. He was enslaved doing manual labor. And then after six years, he escaped, and apparently it was quite an escape, very daring. He had to cross you know, hundreds of miles and things like that, but he escaped. Um, but what he said was that that time as a slave really helped him get his heart right with God. He was 16 when he was taken, so from 16 to 22, he's a slave, but he said it was very influential in helping him grow to know the Lord. And then something happens. St. Patrick has a dream. Uh, It says, "'I saw a man coming, as it were, from Ireland. His name was Victoricus, and he carried many letters, and he gave me one of them. I read the heading, "'The Voice of the Irish.'" As I began the letter, I imagined in that moment that I heard the voice of those very people who were near the wood of Folklet, which is beside the Western Sea. And they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. So he took this dream as a sign from God that he was meant to be a missionary to the Irish. So these people that had enslaved him for six years that he had narrowly escaped from, he makes the choice to go back to Ireland, and he becomes one of the greatest missionaries that the world has ever known, and definitely the greatest missionary to the Irish. People are being converted in droves, and it's all from this former slave that chose to go back to the people who had captured and tortured him to share the gospel. That's that's an awesome story, much better than the stories that you'll hear from people the day after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so the next guy that I would bring up is a guy named Athanasius. Now, this guy's actually a little bit under the radar. Um, he was like an early church father, like in the 300s AD, so a long time ago. Um, so what Athanasius did, though, he defended the deity and et- eternality of Christ. So that's something that is very important for our, our beliefs on salvation. If, if Jesus wasn't God and he was just a created being like we were, What does that mean about his death and resurrection? Was it sufficient? Was it uh, enough for us to be able to receive salvation? Um, So there were people called the Arians who were saying that Jesus was just a created being. And what the Arians had was they had the the rhetoric, rhetoric. they had the words, they had the politics. They were all over it in terms of winning people to ideas. So they didn't have a whole lot of scriptural uh, support. And in fact, as time went on, they kind of focused less and less on that. Focus more on the rhetoric. And Athanasius, he's this blah guy, like he's just boring. But what he does have is he has a absolute perseverance spirit in what he believes is right. So he's defending Nicene Christianity, which uh, is based off the Council of Nicaea, that decided, no, Jesus was co-eternal with the Father, he is God. And he defends this, even though people mocked him for his lack of rhetorical skills, they mocked uh, his speaking, Um, they said, you're behind the times. He was exiled and brought back like five times uh, because when a new emperor would come in, they basically all had a different opinion about the guy. So they'd exile him, then one would bring him back. So he worked tirelessly and focused on this one issue, and he focused on the scriptural evidence for Jesus being God. And even though it was after he died, eventually Arianism was debunked, um, and that the true Nicene Christianity um, about the eternality and the deity of Christ was upheld. And he gave his entire life to that cause so that there would be no loss of uh, doctrine on salvation. So these are two people who really used their mind as well. While the king was gone, they used their time well, and I'm certain that they were welcomed into heaven with a a great round of applause for everything that they did uh, for the kingdom. Um, So as we uh, go out today, uh, I'm going to pray for us, but I just want you to, uh, and then we're going to also just have some time to respond and worship, Um, but I just want you to be thinking, what what are the ways that you're going to impact the kingdom with what God's given you? He's given us all so much. We don't just have one mina. He's given us a treasure. Uh, We have a full treasury of gifts from the Lord. What are we going to do with what he's given us? Father, we are just so thankful that you choose uh, people such as ourselves to be able to represent you. Uh, on earth and we thank you that you are using um, just the good and the bad in us uh, for your glory and we are just so grateful that um, you would see fit to use us uh, lord we just ask that um, you would just give us wisdom as we seek to serve you well um, that you would help us to seek out relationships in which we can be um, brought to know you better to become more likely, like you and that we can help others become more like you as well um, we also just ask that you would help us to persevere um, in times of hardship and doubt, um, in times where we don't want to do the right thing, but we know we're supposed to do the right thing, that you would just give us right perspective, that you would give us um, just the joy uh, that it is to, to be your sons and daughters and just help remind us of that. Uh, we pray now as we respond to you in worship that you would just soften our hearts, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, and that as we go out from here, we would be just reinvigorated to serve you more.